This is Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris. Thanks for listening. This is an audio-only version of our podcast. To see the full video interview, check out tendingbar.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tending Barcast. Hi, I'm Todd Harris, and this is another episode of Tending Bar. I'm really glad you've joined us for this episode because today we're going to talk about some important uh, developments and, and discussions that are going on in the public at large today, matters related to the fairness of our society. It's an, it's an exciting time to be recording these episodes of Tending Bar because the public is talking about issues of race in ways that we haven't seen in a generation. We're talking about issues of white privilege, maybe for some people for the first time. We're talking about issues of implicit bias and structural biases, and those are all important conversations. Today, we're going to talk about some of those same issues, but on a different axis, uh, not just on the axis of race, but as, as those issues affect the LGBTQIA community. We're going to talk about that acronym and all that means and, and uh, those issues. And so I'm very excited that today we have with us Rob Falk. Because Rob has been an important lawyer in uh, the work for a fairer society for all people uh, in his many roles as a lawyer, and we'll hear about some of that today. So if you will, welcome with me our guest today, Rob Falk. Rob, welcome. You're on the air. Thanks, Todd. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Me too. Me too. Um, I, you know, I, I want to start with with this conversation, Rob, and the way that we've we've started most of our conversations with our guests. Uh, as you know, we, we've built Tending Bar in the first order to try to encourage and inspire students, like the students I work with at Georgetown, to think about how they invest their careers in meaningful things. And so, uh, I'd like to ask you how you were drawn to the law in the first instance. What what brought you to 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 law school? Why did you want to be a lawyer? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, my father was a lawyer and I grew up looking at his lifestyle and I swore I would never be a lawyer. <laughs> um, but, um, as I started my undergraduate, uh, uh, study in psychology, I got really interested in the interplay of, uh, mental health and the law, uh, and the role that, um, civil rights uh, has uh, for people who have uh, mental illness. Um, so I went to law school with sort of a desire to be involved in the mental health, um, the mental health and the healthcare space because I sort of felt like policy needed to be affected and I thought the legal skills were the ones that would be most applicable. Uh, interestingly enough, I was on the pre-med uh, track, got to my last semester of physics and I just decided, you know what? I don't want to be a practicing clinician. So um, I took Orgo uh, and everything else that comes with that. Um, so yeah, a little bit of a shift there. That's great. Uh, like you, I had a family with uh, a number of lawyers and that just looked awful to me, um, the amount of uh, hours that they spent at work. Um, but I learned that there are a lot of, lot of ways to be a lawyer. Um, you found a way to be a lawyer that was affecting healthcare and health policy. Um, you were for a while the acting general counsel of DC General Hospital uh, when we had DC General, and uh, and then after that, forming the legal function of Whitman Walker Clinic, sort of the world leader in AIDS research and advocacy for for AIDS patients. Um, what was that like? Tell us about that and, and that era. Um, so uh, this was coming off the '90s where. Uh, in the early to mid-90s, people didn't live with AIDS. They died of AIDS. Um, you had the first generation of uh, antiviral drugs, and suddenly people were living longer. But they were, I mean, it was not a symptomatic-free thing. And also, um, having HIV, and people talk about, didn't talk about it in that terms, but being HIV positive was highly stigmatizing. It was something you kept... Um, to yourself. It's also a time where there are very few protections, legal protections on the basis of either your sexual orientation and certainly nothing on gender identity. Um, and so 
people in that time, uh, myself included, when I started my legal career, you lived in fear of being fired because there was no legal recourse. Uh, you couldn't be counted on to have access to housing. Um, if you came out, you couldn't count on maintaining family or friends. Uh, so as a community, we actually had to create the social support networks for ourselves. Uh, so Whitman Walker was, at the time, much more than a healthcare center for the community. It provided housing. It provided counseling. Uh, it provided social work. So it was a way for the community to do for itself what social institutions weren't doing uh, for the community. Well, that's ter terrific, uh, Rob, and that that probably was terrific preparation for the work then that you that you did with the human rights campaign, uh, which um, viewers and listeners may not know is is our nation's largest advocacy group uh, for for the rights of the LGBT community. Um, and uh, what what drew you to to HRC? So um, I have been very fortunate in my career. Uh, I, I got to Whitman Walker uh, because I was doing a lot of pro bono work for their clients. Uh, when they formed the first general counsel function, I was a known commodity and was hired uh, to be their uh, general counsel. I had been a healthcare attorney. And um, when I returned to private practice, I started or actually continued doing a lot of pro bono work for uh, the human rights campaign. Uh, and once again, my pro bono client hired me. So it's been a real privilege to get paid to do stuff that I had done previously for free. Um, look, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. Uh, this was at a time where there was uh, heavy social attention on the community and not in a positive way. Uh, Gays, gays, lesbians, transgender uh, people had been banned from the military. Uh, the, um, the efforts to uh, counter uh, any recognition of same-sex marriage was uh, proliferating across the country. The number of hate crimes, uh, the physical violence done uh, to members of the community was escalating. Uh, and uh, I really wanted to be joining the movement to try to make uh, change uh, as as somebody who actually had skills to bring to the table. Um, just to be clear, I was the business lawyer for the organization. So I always say, I didn't make the equality. I took care of the people who made the equality. <laughs> well, you did great work there. And um, it was because of your time in HRC that we got to know each other. I think you had been there just a few months when I was uh, newly at, at my current law firm, Womble Bond Dickinson, and uh, we went to lunch and said, how can we do some do some work together? Um, and I, I, maybe I should give just a, enough background to uh, to ask this question. I, you know, I grew up in the arts. I was a classically trained musician, and uh, those music interests are what led me to be an intellectual property lawyer, you know, focused on copyright and such issues. And, um, but in the arts community, and uh, all the way through college, in Alabama, where I was raised, that was one of the few places it was okay for my friends to be out. And mm -hmm. so I had gay friends that I was aware of, unlike you know most of my community that had gay friends they weren't aware of because they weren't out. And um, those became issues that were um, dear to me because those people were dear to me. Um, when I went to Yale Divinity School, that was a place where a disproportionate number of the student body were gay students. Um, they were pursuing clergy uh, degrees with, with plans to be clergy, and not because that was representative of the uh, proportions in the, in the clergy nationwide, but because that had become known as a place uh, where, where students could openly wrestle with issues around ordination and full inclusion of the community uh, in the life of the church. And so those issues also became dear to me, again, because those, those classmates of mine were and, and are still dear to me. And so um, I was reflecting on that time in preparation for a meeting, and I, I uh, recall that when I was in school and just becoming um, better educated about some of these issues, we didn't have the language that we have today. We didn't have the acronyms that we had today. I was part of a group uh, at Yale that was called the GLSBC, I believe, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight, Bi Coalition, I, I think. 
Um, and we didn't have that terminology. And the terminology continues to evolve. So if you don't mind, I was hoping that we could just pause a minute. And um, let me ask you about um, proper use of nomenclature. For, for folks right now who are learning about issues uh, like this and uh, who want to be respectful, um, do we use eight syllables? Do we say LGBTQIA+. What's, what's the... Uh, What's the respectful thing to do? Um, I think at least LGBTQ, but if you look at what younger generation uh, is doing, they're being all inclusive. Uh, LGBTQIA plus, uh, let's break it down a little bit. Uh, the L is for lesbian. Uh, and I'm gonna pause there and give you um, a little bit of a continuum or spectrum, what we're talking about here. You have to think about a couple of different dimensions. Sexual orientation is who you, or what gender you are attracted to. Um, and uh, gender uh, identity is how you feel about yourself in terms of your, your gender. So when we think about terms, we think about um, sex, gender, and expression. Sex is more the biology. That's the, either the genetics you're born with or the parts you were born with. Uh, a doctor might look at you and say, I'm calling you a male or I'm calling you a female based on what I see at birth. Um, identity is how you feel and perceive about yourself. Do I feel masculine? Do I feel feminine? Do I feel neither? Uh, does it vary? Um, and expression is what I'm putting out into the world. So you are expressing a masculine presentation. You're wearing facial hair and short hair in our society, which is a masculine presentation. That's fine. Based on that presentation, I know nothing about your gender identity. And I know nothing about your sex, because especially with hormone uh, replacement therapy, we don't know what you were born with. So it's also important to recognize that each one of those things is on a spectrum. Uh, if one says one is straight, that would be a person who is attracted to a gender different than themselves. Uh, one could be gay. I identify as gay. I'm attracted. I'm identify as man. I'm attracted to men. Bisexual would be somebody who can be, in depending on the situation, attracted to both or multiple genders. Um, similarly speaking, uh, gender identity is something that is on a spectrum, but you can identify as a man, you can identify as a woman, or you could identify as neither or somewhere on the spectrum. Um, in terms of sex, we normally think of people as being born as boy or girl, man or woman, but in fact, that too is on a spectrum. Um, you can have an XXY uh, chromosome type, and there are people who are born uh, and the term intersex refers to people who physiologically might have uh, outward uh, genitalia or outward secondary sexual characteristics that are indicative of what we consider both. So again, even our sexes are on a spectrum. So now that we've broken down those uh, three uh, dimensions, we can go back and talk about the terminology. Uh, lesbian would be, generally speaking, a a person who identifies as a woman who is attracted sexually to, uh, or romantically to other women. Gay would be a person who identifies as a man who's attracted uh, sexually or romantically to men. Bisexual would be a person who identifies as one gender or the other, but is attracted to both genders or multiple genders. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're attracted to all people at all times, but it could uh, vary from time to time. Uh, queer, it, the Q is for queer, sometimes it's also for questioning, but a lot of times the community is looking for an umbrella term for people who don't fit into the uh, straight cisgender uh, type that is normalized in our society. So now I have to jump to the T, which is transgender. Uh, a transgender person is a person who has been assigned a certain sex or assigned a certain gender at birth. They feel very differently about who they are internally. Uh, so a person can be born physiologically with male parts, but their sense of identity is that they are female. Um, 
a transgender person may, uh, may or may not go through what's called a transitioning process where they change their outward expression and they may or may not go through medical treatment that may actually change their physiology. Uh, sometimes they'll do hormone treatment. Uh, sometimes they will actually use, uh, go through a gender confirmation surgery where they actually change uh, the structure of their bodies. Um, so you have the term transgender is a person who feels internally differently from the body they were born into. I use the term cisgender to uh, refer to somebody who identifies with the body type they were born into. So I'm a gay man. Uh, I was, my sex is male uh, and I identify as masculine. So I identify as a gay cisgender man. Um, intersex we already talked about um, is somebody who may have physiological uh, expressions that uh, reflect uh, both sexes. Um, and that is, um, that can take various different forms. Asexual would be a person who does not feel sexual attraction. It would be different than somebody who is celibate who may have sexual attractions, uh, but they choose not to act on them. They make a conscious choice not to engage in sexual activity. Um, and then the plus is all of this is on a spectrum. People, uh, identify differently. And so the plus allows for people who don't feel like any of those boxes fit them or a collection of those boxes fits them, it creates space to say, and anybody else who feels that they are outside of the normative uh, uh, straight uh, and cisgender uh, uh, parameters that society has normalized. Well, well, I, I only asked, um, you to do that. I almost hate, hate to ask you to go through that, but I've seen you do that presentation before. You've, you've, um, you've provided education sessions to my law firm, for example. And um, I so appreciate that. You, you do a service when you do that. It must be tiresome to have to explain those things to people who, who are not familiar. Um, you know, it is, I like having the conversation, but when I'm ready to have it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things I make, uh, I, I do to make change in the world is to educate others. Uh, I think though, I get to choose when and where to do this. And this is a great forum for us to have the conversation. Um, I get to, um, I get to, uh, you know, prepare for it. I get, you know, I'm in the space where I'm trying to be helpful. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I have been in social situations where somebody says, well, why do you people do this? Uh, or what, 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 what is your, your people's position on this? Um, I am Rob Falk. I'm one person. I do not represent the community. Uh, and so I find those sorts of interactions uh, very tiresome. Um, one of the things I hope we uh, get a little to get to a little later in this conversation, as we are having this uh, societal exploration of race and racism, um, I think it really is incumbent upon the majority group to self-educate and not expect that the oppressed minority group uh, do the work to educate uh, the majority group. So. Um, I am co-chair of my organization's diversity committee, and we recently had the start of an internal conversation with all staff about uh, race and racism. I, I made pains to call my white counterparts, my white colleagues into the conversation, but I said to them, do not ask your African-American colleagues or your, uh, people of color on staff to educate you. We live in an era where information is free-flowing, there's the internets, uh, there's YouTube, there are books, there are podcasts, there are videos, there's so many resources out there. So before you ask, uh, take the effort to self-educate. It's really one of the things that we can do as allies to other people. Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, I, I do want to talk about um, some legal challenges that are confronting 
um, the community. But um, since you've raised those issues about education, maybe we'll let's let's skip ahead for a moment and we'll come back to some of the legal issues that uh, you were part of uh, while at HRC. I was um, I'll use an anecdote uh, from just a few weeks ago in my own family. One of the uh, really, the only bad thing that's happened to us during COVID nineteen is is our elderly dog passed away. Um, she was old, she was she was ill, and we took her to the vet, and she passed away while she was at the vet. And um, very sad. We loved we loved that dog. And what happened while we were there? A very large veterinary hospital in in Leesburg, Virginia, um, is that we had to wait outside. We weren't able to to be with um, uh, the dog. And um, my wife and I, because of COVID-19, right? so, so yeah. none of the pet owners were uh, allowed to be inside. And while we were there, we had a conversation with our kids about how many families, this is just our pet, and, uh, but how many families right now are not able to be with their family members who are in ICUs and hospitals because of COVID-19. And uh, that, that we should reflect on that and we should have empathy for those families. Well, that's a, that's a good illustration of the kind of issues that those of us who are not in the LGBTQ community <laughs> or, the, or the larger community um, have not had to suffer. My wife, who's an ICU nurse by training, um, has seen all too often when, when um, the gay family members of a, sick, of a patient were denied access to their, to their loved one in a hospital um, for this, because they weren't officially family as far as the hospital viewed them. Now, that's changed in a lot of hospitals now, but it's an illustration of how um, those of us who aren't in the community are unaware of challenges, not just legal challenges, but challenges by custom and other structures, cultural challenges that members of the community do face. That's a kind of privilege, much like mm -hmm. we've been talking about white privilege in the, in, in the broader race conversation right now. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and help us to understand our privilege by being outside the community. Help us to be aware. Uh, thank you for raising that. Um, I wanna take the healthcare example a little bit uh, deeper uh, because, so let's imagine uh, that your wife develops chest pains and ends up in the uh, ER, uh, probably undergoing some testing. And you rush to the hospital and you say, um, you know, that they will ask, what's your relationship to her? Oh, I'm her husband. Uh, well, you're probably then whisked to the uh, back of the, uh, outside of the, the waiting room. You're allowed to be at her bedside. Nobody ever questions you. Nobody asks for any papers. Uh, and if, for instance, she ends up going unconscious, people automatically turn to you and say, what do you want us to do? Um, and so the experience, uh, certainly before marriage was legalized for LGBTQ families, was there was no presumption that any of that was possible. And so, for example, if I had a partner of 20 years, no legal status, uh, somebody goes to the hospital having chest pains, I go and ask for um, to see my partner. Um, I'm at the mercy of the desk clerk about whether I'm allowed backward, allowed in the back. Um, even today, uh, a lot of uh, same-sex married couples will have the experience saying, somebody arrives says, I'm his husband. Uh, and they will say, well, do you have any documentation that shows that? That is never, that, is, that does not happen to, to uh, heterosexual couples. Um, the, then the experience even after that was even if the hospital before marriage would allow the person back there uh, to be at a bedside, the, the partner had no legal standing to make any medical decisions. So one of the things that um, has happened and still happens is a lot of uh, LGBTQ people have been rejected by their families and are estranged. Uh, so you end up in this very odd uh, situation where um, at the bedside, the hospital is looking for 
somebody to make medical decisions. They may be calling a parent who the individual has not talked to for 20 years, knows nothing about them, and has affirmatively rejected them. That is the impact of not having a legally uh, recognized relationship. Uh, further, the partner may know exactly what the person's wishes were at the time, uh, may have actually created a, a living, uh, living will or a durable power of attorney. The uh, family of birth comes in and uh, says, no, we're actually the legal representatives and we'll challenge that. And again, that is something that generally speaking, heterosexual couples don't go through. Um, I do want to point out, while same-sex uh, marriage is recognized now throughout the country, it is still legal to fire somebody, uh, uh, to refuse to provide housing, uh, to refuse places of public accommodations in the majority of the United States. So people operate under the presumption that marriage is legal, so LGBTQ people have equal rights. That is, in fact, not, not the case. In the majority of the country, you can still be fired for being gay, for being transgender, uh, with no legal recourse. So we, we, we do have a long way to go. Uh, indeed. Um, and thank you for that. So you have done some terrific work in support of legal issues, and HRC has done terrific work. Um, during, during your tenure there, um, we saw a real change of attitude around marriage equality, and uh, it was just just in the recent history, only just a few years ago now, when the Obergefell decision uh, was reached by the Supreme Court, um, and HRC was in, in support and filed uh, important briefs around that. Can you talk to us about that? And for those who aren't familiar, if you could just, just tell us what Obergefell was. So... Um Obergefell was a Supreme Court case uh, that basically asked whether the states could legally deny uh, the legal institution of marriage to same-sex couples. Uh, there had been uh, a series of challenges, and a number of state courts had already found that under state constitutional principles uh, that uh, laws banning same-sex marriage were unconstitutional at the local level, but this was a federal decision. And the Supreme Court held that, in fact, the right to marry the partner of your choice is a constitutionally protected uh, right. Um, so uh, it was a very heady time. It was a very concerning time uh, for the movement. Um, what was interesting and what I think we were really uh, proud of were the additional voices we brought to the table. Um, and in, and in surprising ways. So, uh, and I think this also has analogies to what needs to happen in the space on race, because I think we're at a critical juncture now uh, as a society. So um, we coordinated a corporate brief in support of marriage. So we had major corporations uh, signing on on a brief to the Supreme Court saying, yes, same-sex marriage should be the law of the land. And here were major employers saying that this is important to us. Um, and also we uh, filed an amazing people's brief uh, where individuals were given the chance to sign on. Uh, the copies of the brief with all the names of individuals who signed on was, I think, 11 or 12 bound volumes. <laughs> it was really impressive to see. Um, but we do recognize that the Supreme Court is influenced by the social milieu that they live in. Uh, and so it was important to think about all the different corporate institutions, or not corporate, the societal institutions that can affect not only legal outcomes, but social outcomes. Uh, one of the things that I was really proud of, uh, I was working on when I was at HRC was D.C. was one of the first uh, jurisdictions to legislatively enact marriage equality. And to make that happen, we had to elevate the voices of our allies. And for those of you who don't know, D.C. is a heavily African-American community. Uh, voices of faith uh, have a lot of influence here. Um, and so we worked to elevate uh, uh, people of faith 
coming in support of marriage equality, African-American community members coming in support of uh, marriage equality, and all those voices of allies coming to the table saying, equality is equality, people are people, and humanity matter, allowed the city council to take the step of enacting marriage equality. Um, so I think, you know, as we think about making societal change, we need to think of strategies to bring in all uh, of our social institu institutions to make that change because, in fact, social institutions have, by action or inaction, been supporting whatever problems we're having now. Yeah, yeah. We saw we saw in the case of marriage equality such a shift in public opinion over such a short period of time. It was really a, a sweeping change, um, and as you say, that that can only happen by bringing in a, a, a very large um, coalition. I wonder if that sort of sweeping change is what we're witnessing now around the conversations on race uh, here in the district and and elsewhere. Um, it feels it feels like a moment in time where uh, conversation tough conversations are being had that haven't been had in my my lifetime. Um, I think it's the start of a uh, conversation, and the question is whether it continues. So it really is interesting that so many corporations are coming forward and making states about race and racism. Uh, previously, you would only have been making statements about diversity or treating people equally. But, you know, you have these major institutions in society saying that, yes, race and racism are factors in what's going on in our society. Um, I think religious institutions are doing the same thing. They're, they're actually having to come forward. And some of the uh, religious institutions have been way in the vanguard of this, but some have not. Uh, and so um, thinking about, you know, this is a transformative more moment where I think people are saying the word racism. They are talking about the murder of George Floyd. They're not talking about police brutality. They are talking about the murder of a black man. Uh, and anybody who dances around uh, the issue of avoiding using the term race or racism uh, or avoiding the term killing or murder are being skewered in the uh, court of public opinion right now, which is totally fair. And that is the start of making change. But I think the hard part is continuing that because people may say, yes, there's a problem, but I don't know if we know what to do about that. Yeah. Um, we had, we had colorful sayings in the South when I grew up, which I, which I won't repeat verbatim, but the, the, the point of them was that hate in the abstract is a lot easier than knowing someone personally. It's very hard to, to, to hate or to wish discrimination or to act out discrimination on people who are very real to us and not just uh, one-dimensional uh, caricature. And... Um, so, so much, it seems, of, of fights around discrimination are about education and awareness, um, which is uh, maybe a necessary precondition for shaking ourselves from our privilege um, of developing empathy. Um, I wonder, I wonder um, in the case of marriage equality, how important do you think it was that we had uh, leadership yeah, and I, not not to make this discussion political. We I'm trying trying to be an equal opportunity uh, platform here, but uh, President Obama was very public about how his mind changed. In fact, he credited Joe Biden for urging him to change his mind on uh, marriage equality. And in in that mindset, he was quite outspoken to the community. How important is is leadership like that on changing broad public opinion? Do you think? Well, you know, the bully pulpit of the presidency is a very powerful tool just to be able to uh, have a president who will say the term gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Uh, that's huge. And acknowledging people as people. 
Um, also, under that administration, the president has a lot of regulatory power, and a lot was done without congr- uh, under his administration without uh, legislative uh, involvement. Um, I do want to pull a thread of something you mentioned there was like, you know, one of the keys uh, was um, to making societal change was people knowing each other and interacting with each other. And I think in my mind, there is a fundamental difference between LGBTQ equality and uh, the issue of race, which is LGBTQ people can pop up in any family. You know, my parents were heterosexual, my brothers were uh, are cisgender and uh, heterosexual, and here I am, a, a, an openly gay man. And so they, my family has learned a lot and has had to adjust their attitudes by virtue of me being part of the family. And I think the queer community uh, increasingly was coming out and there was power in those stories because we were already mixed in with the majority and there was no way to really separate us out. People could reject us, but we would pop up uh, you know, in, in any family, in any institution. In terms of race, we live very segregated uh, lives. Um, so when I think about my personal education growing up, I had very few instructors from the time I was in elementary school through the time I finished my law school who were people of color. Um, so my teachers were by and large white. My friends, certainly the neighborhood where I grew up was exclusively white. Uh, the people I played uh, on soccer teams with were white. Um, by and large, the uh, college that I went to was, you know, highly white. And so we can, our, our actual default for a lot of white people is we go through our lives never interacting with people of color. And so we don't get to know people as people. Um, and so we don't really get to understand what their lived experiences, uh, what the challenges are. You know, like for example, I go out on the street corner, maybe not now, but six months ago, I raised my hand. I presume that a cab is gonna stop for me. That is not the presumption of an African-American male. Uh, I go into Target. I start shopping, wandering around the store aisles. Somebody's following me. I was like, okay. Uh, If I'm an African-American male, I think I'm being followed because I'm under suspicion for theft. Um, If I'm pulled over by the police, my presumption is they're going to help me or at least treat me indifferently. That's not the presumption of an African-American male. Um, So because we don't intersect with people of different uh, races, because we live not legally, uh, necessarily legally uh, segregated lives, but structurally segregated lives, uh, whether it's, you know, by income, and there's a reason why, uh, you know, income is is structurally racism, um, that we don't get to know people as people, and that, I think that impoverishes us, and also it leaves us right now at this transformative time without the tools, without the language to really talk about race and understand that, you know, the fact that we live in a racist society does not mean that we specifically chose that for ourselves. Um, the fact that we may have racist ideations or um, presumptions is not something we chose. Uh, you and I have had this conversation before. I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, negative racial stereotypes were everywhere. And it, what, it was not only what was said about people, it was the way people acted uh, towards African-American and other people of color. And so um, I'm going to date myself here, uh, but those are tapes that go through my brain all the time. And I cannot deny that they are there And in fact, I have to realize they're there because I have to fight against them and I have to make new narratives. But there is no way that I can say that 
the racist training, and it really was training. It was a socialization process. Uh, if I'm not very aware of that and, and fight against it, my default is to go there. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I chose that for myself. But I actually have to make affirmative steps to avoid the outcomes. And so that, that onus is on me. Right. So uh, I hope that you'll have an opportunity to watch the discussion with Allison Bost in a different episode where Allison. Um, oh, I love Allison. Allison uh, teaches implicit bias, does implicit bias training for, uh, okay. for groups. And uh, we're, we are having a conversation around those issues. Um, and uh, uh, one of the points to make is, is, as you've just said, it's not, not a choice that we've made that the database, uh, you know, under our conscience is, uh, consciousness is uh, giving us a set of default responses or default associations um, that we will act on if we're not thoughtful. But also that the harm is still just as real to those who who live the negative impact. And that's why it's an ethical issue for us. Um, aware that it, the harm is still real, um, as, as evidenced in, in policing, uh, that, that acts on those default implicit associations or unconscious biases. Um, it's something for us to be working on. Um, so, so that brings us around to say there, you've been involved in a number of educational efforts to have people, learning a new narrative. And um, I wonder if you can tell us about some of those that you're especially proud of. Um, so while I was at HRC, there were a couple of programs that were looking at how do we change the dialogue that's going on in some of our uh, societal institutions. Um, and again, remember that I was acting as a business lawyer uh, for the organization. We had a program called Welcoming Schools uh, which created, uh, offered a diversity curriculum that included LGBTQ issues, but was not exclusively about that, uh, for elementary schools. Um, we had the All Children, All Families program that trained uh, adoption agencies um, to be culturally competent, not only for queer youth who needed a family placement in foster care or adoption, but also for LGBTQ parents who were interested in adopting uh, or fostering uh, children. And so one of the mindsets that troubled me was that HRC and my colleagues were the national experts on these issues. They had spent a lot of time studying them. They developed the best practices. And they were literally giving the programs away. And... I saw these programs as being fundamentally valuable. And let's focus on the school systems for a while. School systems pay all the time for curricula, for teacher training, professional development. And our stuff was as good or better than uh, uh, programs that were being developed uh, in other topics. And so if this is an important topic, my view was that people should pay for it. Uh, and so one of the real joys of working with that team was uh, convincing them that A, that there was a market out there, B, that they deserve compensation for it, and C, helping, once they, it's like the light bulb went off, is like, oh, hey, this actually is valuable, helping them coach through developing a business mindset. Uh, and as a result, um, now the Welcoming Schools curriculum, I'm not current on it, but is in uh, thousands of schools across the country. And that's, that's really rewarding. And helping to, help to fund people. the broader work of HRC. Yeah. So yeah, that's that was true. very exciting. Um, so you're, yeah. you're a D.C. resident? Yes. Um, how are things in D.C. currently as, uh, as the marches continue? I see them uh, still as late as yesterday. So... I think there's federal DC and there's local DC. Um, federal DC is not exercising any leadership <laughs> at this point. Uh, people uh, in positions of power, both on the executive and legislative branch are, are not helping us have a civil dialogue about 
changing the way society acts in terms of these outcomes. Local DC, I am hopeful um, actually for what people in my neighborhood, people who live here are trying to do. Um, one of the most joyous uh, things for me, uh, and this has been sort of a hard uh, time for me just mentally, uh, both dealing with the injustice of what has happened and trying to figure out, you know, how to act. I'm uh, co-chair of uh, Truth Initiatives Diversity Committee, so trying a way to support our African-American colleagues, trying to find a way to advance the dialogue within my organization to move us to action. That's been very, um, that's been hard. It's, it's important, but it's, it's, it's been work. But there was a vigil organized by a number of churches uh, basically to line 16th Street, which is a major thoroughfare in and out of DC. It, it, it takes people all the way from Maryland right down to the White House. And the goal was just to have a vigil of support for one hour for the African-American community and people were just asked to come to the streets and show support. My whole neighborhood, 16th Street, was lined with people. Um, Me included, by the way. Oh, okay, you were there? I was there. Okay. Um, and so one of the most meaningful moments there was uh, one of the Metro buses drove by, there was a stop right in front of where I was standing for this vigil. And the driver literally got out of the bus. She had her cell phone on taking a picture of a crowd of people showing support for her. She was literally in tears. Um, when you're not, when you feel different, when you feel othered in a community, the power of people providing support is really important. Yeah. Um, I felt that personally during the Pulse nightclub killings. Uh, and um, again, as allies right now, I think it's important to provide that support to the uh, African-American community yeah. in whatever form is meaningful to them and to you. Well, um, I want to thank you for all of that work. I want to spend some time talking about your current endeavors. So you're the general counsel of the Truth Initiative. Yeah. And uh, we, we, see, uh, we see your uh, background screen there um, of the Truth yeah, Initiative. I'm not office. in the office. I'm in a virtual background. <laughs> um, so that's important work that you're doing now as well. Can you tell us what is the Truth Initiative? What, what's its origin? How did it come to be? And what is it about? So uh, Truth Initiative is the nation's largest nonprofit that seeks to inspire youth to reject uh, tobacco, vaping, and nicotine uh, addiction. Uh, we were created out of the uh, large uh, lawsuits in the late 90s brought by state attorneys general against the tobacco companies, which led to a massive uh, multi-hundred billion dollar se settlement. Uh, we were a nonprofit that was created uh, to large in it, to both counter market against uh, the tobacco companies because we know that uh, tobacco companies have a long history of uh, targeting youth um, and uh, minority communities uh, for their products. Uh, in fact, if you don't start smoking or vaping by the time you're 18, you're very unlikely to ever become a uh, consumer of the product. So this is an industry that is built off of uh, youth uh, usage and addiction. Um, so we're very known for edgy uh, advertising. Uh, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that you hadn't seen our ads, but your uh, children had. Uh, we have a very sophisticated advertising program that places content in front of people who are between 13 and 24. Uh, so um, as a lawyer, I had been fortunate to have a number of experiences in terms of making change. I've been involved in litigation. I've been involved in lobbying on the Hill. Um, I've done some transactional work. 
but I've never been involved in advertising. And the power of the communication uh, and the creativity of my colleagues is really incredible. Um, so that's been a real growth moment for me. Uh, and then also we have 35 uh, members on staff who are research scientists who are like at the forefront of doing research on youth usage, youth addiction, uh, the consequences of uh, particularly vaping right now. Uh, youth vaping is at about 30%. So that's about 30% of youth, uh, high school seniors who are on their way are already addicted to nicotine. Um, none of these products are currently on the market legally. They, it's just that the FDA has not enforced. And so it's really, it feels particularly meaningful to me to be involved in this public health issue. Um, I have two grandparents who died of lung cancer that was smoking related. Uh, my maternal grandfather was a big strapping man. He had been a booze runner, uh, blockade runner in, uh, on the coast of North Carolina during prohibition. Uh, and I actually had to watch him waste away in a hospital bed. So, uh, you know, when I think about my grandparents, it's really joyful to be involved in this work, uh, both preventing uh, kids from initiating uh, tobacco and nicotine usage and also we've got, uh, what's been really fun is we've developed um, both smoking and vaping cessation uh, solutions and seeing the success of those programs and seeing those grow commercially, uh, it's just been fun. It's, it's really a great way to think about keeping people healthy and people engaged in uh, controlling their own destinies. So uh, when you look back over, over uh your many great jobs and the work that you've done. Um, it's easy to see that you have always had a sort of public minded legal career. Um, everything you've done has been for a bigger picture and for the benefit of the community. What, where's that come from, Rob? What's, what drives that? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think my parents modeled the behavior, uh, and so they were both heavily involved uh, in the community in a number of ways, uh, both through our uh, temple and then other civic associations. And the interesting thing is um, my dad in particular was not a person to take a lot of credit. So when he died, I had so many of his friends come forward and say, gosh, I remember when your father did this, or I remember when your father did that. It's like, I had no idea, because he would just do things, and you wouldn't hear about it. But then you would hear about how it led to, uh, you know, this new project in the local bar, or it involved this, you know, uh, this new program that served youth. And, and he never just talked about it. He just did it. Um, so that was incredibly gratifying. What a great legacy. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, finally I'd like to ask you, if you, if you um, can think about those students for whom Tending Bar was created and as they're beginning to think about all the resources that they have developed through their education and they're beginning to um, consider how to invest those resources and their time and their years ahead, what advice would you have for them about the careers they, cho they choose? So I think... You know, I was in private practice off and on for 16 years. Uh, and so, uh, and by and large, I had a positive experience with that. But I think, you know, you may have a passion or you may have a desire to be involved in making change in society. You can still do that. Um, certainly, pro bono work has been my pathway to getting to where I am. Uh, it's not just the fact that my pro bono clients hired me, but uh, it was through uh, my pro bono projects over the years where I developed skills in um, bankruptcy, employment law, uh, legislative drafting, um, litigation. I was trained as a Medicare Medicaid lawyer, but it was my pro bono uh, work that fleshed out my skills 
so that when I wanted to go to a nonprofit organization, I could at least claim awareness of the issues, which was helpful. And then the rest was the golden shovel. Uh, but um, so I think, you know, you can make a difference. And then also, I think there is a value in the rigor with which we as lawyers are trained to think where you can provide a service. I think, you know, being in the nonprofit world, there are a lot of people who intend to do well, but don't think rigorously about how to get there and don't think strategically. So, um, you know, if you can't go directly into public service, still be involved in public service. Um, you know, put a sticky to yourself for 10 years somewhere where you'll see it on a daily basis saying, this is where I want to make change. And just go and make a decision to help support that. Um, you've got the skills. And the other thing that I would just say is, as you're in law school and as you're graduating from law school, you are least afraid of learning than you will ever be in your career. <laughs> right. uh, you don't know anything. Um, so I think one of the things that you can do and think about your pro bono work and the projects you get involved in social services, think about putting yourself in a zo zone of discomfort because that's actually where you're going to grow. I think, you know, a lot of lawyers uh, end up being pigeonholed into a specific practice and then they suddenly get very scared if you ask them to do something very different because they're very used to feeling competent and expert. Find a space in your life as you go through uh, the world where you're still embracing that discomfort. Uh, three and a half years ago, I started taking improv classes and start talking about like, you know, something that will freak a lawyer out, <laughs> somebody who wants to be in control, whereas improv is the opposite of being in control. Uh, it's been good. It's been good to be in that zone of discomfort and still learn that I can learn uh, uh, a new skill. Are you, uh, can we see you uh, doing improv anywhere uh, at any venue in DC? Um, I have uh, been on independent teams that have performed. Right now, everything in the improv world is being done online like this. Uh, so, yeah, um, it'll be interesting what I'm still taking classes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what that happens, happens in that world when it comes out. But I would say, um, I'm a mediocre uh, improviser, uh, but I have fun with it, and it is a license to play. So, you know, like, that is one of the spaces where I find some rejuvenation. That's great. I look forward to seeing you. So uh, I want to thank you for being with us today, and uh, thank you for all the, the great contributions you have made for the benefit of all of us uh, in the larger community. You've done such great work. Thanks for sharing with us about it today. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for including me. Thanks for joining us today. I'm grateful to Rob Falk for taking part in this conversation. Just a few days after our interview, the Supreme Court announced its ruling in Bostock v. Clayton County. That's a big case because for the first time, the Supreme Court told us that Title VII of the National Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination against employees on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. A big deal indeed. So I reached out to Rob and I asked him if he had any comment, and this is what he said. This is a major milestone in the LGBTQ civil rights movement. However, because Title VII only applies to employers with 15 or more employees, the Supreme Court ruling does not protect individuals who work for small businesses or independent contractors. Many state and local laws provide enhanced protections for LGBTQ employees of smaller businesses but a significant number of workers remain exposed. Rob reminds us that there will always be work to be done in our march toward greater equality and civil rights. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you'll join us right back here for our next episode. Until then, I'm Todd Harris. This is Tending Bar, and I'll see you soon. One of the questions I, I almost asked was, <clears throat> does all discrimination come from the same place? 
you know, the answer to that is above both your and my pay grade. But I, but I, I do I do tend to believe this is the old pastor in me that it's really hard for people to um, dismiss another when they really know them. Yeah. And um, and so it's hard hard to hate a, a class of people when your own life experience contradicts what society's been telling you. And so we have to find ways to give them that data of experience.